This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. So welcome to the Politics is Everything podcast at the Center for Politics at UVA. I'm Kyle Kondik, managing editor of our Crystal Ball newsletter. Happy to be joined today by my friend Henry Olson, who is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, Henry also wrote a great book a few years ago called The Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan and the Return of Blue Collar Conservatism, which is pretty topical, I think, for where politics is right now and and some of the gains that Republicans are trying to make uh, this year, particularly in in certain working class places. Uh, Henry, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me on. So, um, you know, look, we've been trying to analyze this election and Henry follows not only U.S. politics, but also uh, tweets about elections of overseas and whatnot. And, and if you follow him on election nights, you'll see him talking about uh, talking about not just American elections, but also elections in, in other places. But I found that this election has sort of gotten to me anyway, at least like kind of more confusing to, to over over time as opposed to less confusing. Uh, there's been some sort of mixed electoral indicators um, maybe making this a little bit harder to analyze than maybe like a 2014 or 2018. Um, do you find this election to be kind of confusing? And where, where are you at generally with where the election is? Yeah, I do find it to be confusing because everything we know about politics from like the last 30 or 40 years is that midterms operate as referenda on the president and that when the president is unpopular, the party in power suffers. And that was what looked was like was going to happen. It's certainly what happened in 2021 in the Virginia and New Jersey state elections, or um, perhaps in deference to Virginian ears, I should say the state and Commonwealth elections. You know, the fact is that um, we've seen uh, two things that are very unusual. One is usually a president's job approval rating does not increase in the last six months before midterm. Joe Biden's has gone up by six points, admittedly from an abysmally low 37%, but it has gone up. And the other thing is that we have Democrats ahead in many generic ballot polls and barely ahead in the generic ballot average, which should not be happening with the president at 43% job approval. So um, I still tend to think that Republicans will do better than the current estimates. It may uh, even be as good as Republicans hoped it would be six months ago. But the data are conflicting and therefore confusing. You, know, you recently wrote a column for The Washington Post about kind of what you, you were just talking about, about how, um, you know, there there's an important part of the electorate, the people who just sort of somewhat disapprove of the president. And um, typically you'd expect those people to ultimately vote against the White House. But based on your reading of the poll, that's at least that's not happening now. Maybe it happens in the future, but but not maybe not happening now. Yeah. So what the, just to summarize the piece that. It's actually each gradient of approval or disapproval that matters, that when you go back and look at both Senate polls and House national generic ballot polls going back in the last few midterms, you find that if a president has a strong, anyone who strongly approves of a president, you're about 98% likely to vote for him. Strong disapproval, about 98% likely to vote against the president's party. And somewhat approvals uh, are like... 75 to 85% likely to vote for the president. So the reason uh, presidents tend to lose midterms is because of that somewhat disapproval group. Historically, the best a president's party has done in the House generic midterm ballot, going back in the last four uh, first-term midterms, has been to lose it by 20 points. 
but there are many polls out right now that not only show the Democrats tying, but have them leading among that group. We should note that that's historically unusual. Um, and the other reason why I think Republicans should have hope is that virtually all of the undecideds on the generic ballot are people who disapprove of Joe Biden. That's true, both with respect to there's a higher than usual undecided share among strong disapprovals, but especially among the somewhat disapprovals that they tend to be like 30 percent undecided. And they're almost all independents. So what you have is people who are not committed to either party who don't particularly care for Joe Biden, who are telling pollsters they're undecided. Historically, these people should break sharply against the president. And Democratic hopes rest on them at least splitting this group, if not winning this group. I think it's hard, but I understand why the data are suggesting that it's possible. And, you know, I, I guess a lot of this probably, or at least it has something to do, I guess, with the, you know, with the abortion issue and that's a, that it's emergence over the last, uh, you know, couple of months since the Supreme Court's decision. And it seems to me, and I'll see if you agree with this, but those independents seem like very much cross-pressured, you know, that they're, they don't like Biden, but maybe they don't like the Republicans on the abortion issue, or maybe they got other problems with Republican candidates or that sort of thing. Like, do you think that's, I guess that to me, I guess is the big mystery of the election, right? It is the big mystery of the election. And there's a couple of things I'd want to say. One is I think it's clear that the abortion issue has energized marginally attached Democrats, that typically in the midterm, you know, there, there are people who will vote in every election and there are people who will vote only in presidential years. Typically in the midterm, a larger share of the only presidential voter will vote for the party out of power. That gives them a slight turnout advantage. I think abortion has negated that turnout advantage for Republicans, and that's going to hold back some of the gains they could have made. But it remains very unclear that abortion is motivating independents, especially independents who disapprove of Joe Biden, that uh, you look at polls and the economy or inflation still tends to be overwhelmingly the large number one topic on, among independents. And so I think what you've got is an independent group that is cross-pressured. You know, there's a, if, if you're an independent who didn't like Joe Biden, doesn't like Joe Biden, now you are highly likely to have voted for him in 2020. You know, these are the people who didn't like Donald Trump, are not Democrats. So they're feeling that cross-pressure. Democrats are trying to remind this voter why they voted for Joe Biden. In other words, look at those awful Republicans, those ultra MAGA people. And Republicans, I think, are going to be trying to remind them why they're upset with Joe Biden. If the Democrats break even with this group, this will be a good midterm with the Democrats. If the Republicans are successful in persuading them that their current dissatisfaction matters more than the dissatisfaction they had in 2020, then this could still be a very good year for Republicans. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, it seems like you're suggesting that, you know, I, and I think about this too, like, I, you know, after the Democrats have had, I think, particularly good news in August and some special elections and other things that I almost wonder if the Republicans are sort of underrated now in, 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 in you know, as sort of a, you know, for, for handicapping the, the election. And, and you're pointing to some of the things that might, be a reason, you know, if in fact they, they, they are underrated. I mean, do you think that that's, do you think that's how the, the things have developed here recently? You're not putting words in my mouth. You're rather reading my mind. That is exactly what I think is that Republican chances are underrated. Uh, you know, look, I don't think it's true among the professional prognosticator class of which I count you and people, you know, like at the Cook Political Report or so forth. I do think the, uh, the non-professional political pundit who creates most of the narrative, 
leans strongly to the Democrats. And you have a not surprising adoption of the Democratic means, uh, particularly because it's very rare to find somebody in the punditocracy who's opposed to abortion. So this is something they care about. They look at the narrative that fits with their worldview. So I think you have an exaggeration in the general narrative. Yeah, but again, if if Republican chances are actually underrated, we will start to see a poll movement towards the Republicans, which we've started to see in some Senate races. Most of the recent polls in Senate races have Republicans doing better than they did in July. Uh, and if this happens, we'll start to see Republicans moving up in the generic ballot in September. We'll start to see some of those undecideds come off the fence. Um, and if we don't see it by mid-October, then we'll have to say that maybe the Republican chances weren't uh, underrated, but I think they are. You know, one of the things I guess that goes into the, the narrative of these elections, too, is, you know, the, or just the polls in general. And, you know, there have been some high profile polling misses in recent years. Generally speaking, those misses have understated Republicans and overstated uh, Democrats. Uh, Nate Cohn in the New York Times on Monday had a had a piece talking about how some of the particularly good Democratic numbers are coming in places where the polls have under you know understated Republicans, which kind of raises the possibility that that's happening again. Um, you know, do, so so how I mean, I I certainly worry about that as someone who's very reliant on polls. What you know, how, what what do you think about that? You know, just the polls in general right now. Yeah, so I actually have come to the conclusion that there's a systemic underbias, undercounting of Republican friendly groups in polls. It's not a conclusion I come to lightly, but the fact is we have experiences going back to 2014 of massive poll misses, and they tend to be in places with high numbers of whites with college degrees as a share of the electorate or in places with large numbers of Latinos who are also working class voters. I think we've gotten to the point now where uh, a larger share of Republican friendly working class voters do not respond to normal polls. Uh, waiting up does not solve that problem because if you're waiting up college educated, or waiting down college educated or waiting up uh, working class voters, if the subgroup doesn't include a certain segment of the electorate, you'll simply wait up uh, an inaccurate subgroup. Um, you know, take a look at what happened in 2020. Uh, virtually every state poll was off by Democrats. Uh, the best state was in Georgia, where it was only pro-Democratic by about a point. The worst state was Wisconsin again, where it was off by over six points. But you can just go look look at the old. I don't want to go you know go on Nate Silver, but you go look at the 2020. Uh, 538.com projection. It is off in every state at both the senatorial and the presidential level by a large degree in favor of the Democrats. That's because what he does is base models off of polls. And, you know, and what happened in Florida? You had a big mistake in Florida, and that has both Latinos and white working class voters. So what I suspect is going to happen, uh, and one last point is that Dave Wasserman looked at polls and he found a systemic anti-Republican uh, bias in the Midwest going back before 2020, but a pro-Democratic bias in the Southwest. Well, why might that be? It might be because Latino voters are 20 to 25 percent of the electorate in these Southwest states like Arizona and New Mexico or Arizona and Nevada and Colorado. 
Well, now we think that the Latinos are moving in favor of the Republicans, uh, not that they'll win Republicans, but that you'll have a larger Republican vote there. Again, I suspect you'll have at this time a pro-Republican uh, or an anti-Republican bias in the Southwest. And I think that's one reason why we should be very careful when we're looking at state level polling in terms of projecting out these state races. Uh, national polls seem to be less subject to the error, but state level polls seem to be very subject to these errors. And I think any analyst needs to take that into account when they're looking at 2022. Yeah. I mean, you know, we do our you know race ratings, of course, at the crystal ball. And, you know, we've had Wisconsin Senate race as leans Republican basically the whole cycle. And it's a race we get a lot of people saying, hey, why isn't it a toss up? You know, Mandela Barnes, a Democrat, is narrowly leading in the polls. And, you know, you you just said it. I mean, the polls have been pretty biased toward the Democrats and, uh, uh, you know, in Wisconsin in recent years. And that's not necessarily to slam the pollsters there. There are people doing polls there who I respect. It's just it's a hard problem. But it seems reasonable to suspect that, um, that maybe Ron Johnson, the Republican there, is maybe getting under rated by a little bit. And if that's the case, then, you know, a small deficit maybe turns into a small lead when it's all um, when it's all said and done. So, you know, that's my way to just nudge in here and sort of respond to some people that we've heard from um, about our uh, about our about our ratings. Um, you know, Henry, you follow this just like we do seat by seat in the House and the Senate. Are there places, you know, specific a seat or two in the House or the Senate that you're particularly interested in um, in this cycle that you might be watching on uh, on election night and the lead up to election night? Yeah, my race in the House is Indiana one. Um, that is a Gary based seat with uh, that has been quickly moving right because it's a working class based seat. It has a significant black community. Republicans have a Air Force veteran, African-American woman, Jennifer Ruth Green, if memory serves me correct. And this is the sort of seat that if there's going to be a good Republican night, they will either win it or come close. It's a Biden plus eight seat, if memory serves me correctly. And uh, that's about the cusp point where you would expect uh, a good Republican night to start picking up most seats below that and begin to pick up seats uh, uh, above that. And the NRCC's targeting scheme in terms of its television buys are consistent with that they still believe that they can win these seats, that uh, they're putting a lot of money into seats that are Biden plus six, Biden plus seven, Biden plus 10, Biden plus 11. Those are seats that you would not expect to win in a 2020-like year, but you would expect to win in a year uh, in a normal midterm where the president is polling at 43%. Um, so that's the seat I'm looking at in the House. Uh, in the Senate, what I'm really looking at there is uh, the Arizona seat, because that's a seat that was very narrowly Democratic in 2018, very narrowly Democratic in 2020. If there's any sort of shift to the Republican Party, you expect that seat to fall. Uh, this is also a seat with an allegedly weak candidate, Blake Masters. So if the Democratic narrative that weak candidates will hurt Republicans is going to bear fruit, it's going to bear fruit there. And I say that rather than Pennsylvania because twofold. One is that Pennsylvania has uh, a higher proportion of whites with a working class background. So 
if you're going to see that sort of swing, uh, I would expect to see it there. And also Fetterman's stroke means that you no longer have the sole weak candidate narrative. You have perhaps dueling weak candidates. You might say, well, Dr. Oz shouldn't be a senator, but maybe somebody who can't speak clearly because of a stroke shouldn't be a senator either. So you don't have that dueling weak candidate narrative in Arizona. So that's why Arizona rather than Pennsylvania is my seat to watch. And I'm not looking at Wisconsin because Ron Johnson defies September polling every election. You know, he, he was behind in September in 2010, won by five or six points, behind in September in 2016, won by a few points. Um, I In 2016, had a pretty good election night prediction saying, hey, Donald Trump can win this. Don't expect a Hillary landslide. The method, I didn't do this in my piece, but three months later, I realized, oh, I should have done my methodology of the state level polls. I missed three states in that election, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Had I applied my state level methodology, my federal methodology to the states, I would have gotten Pennsylvania and Michigan right. The only state I would have missed was Wisconsin because the polls were so far off there. So this now has a long-standing Wisconsin pollster. Whoever polls Wisconsin is just not getting Republican voters, and that unfortunately is true. And you have to factor that in. Yeah, and you know, I, I, the Arizona race is interesting too because I, I we'll see if you agree with this. I'm I'm thinking that if, if if Republicans win Arizona, it's probably not their 50th seat. It's probably like their 52nd seat. And so if they flip Arizona, like to me, they're definitely going to win the Senate majority, given how these other races are, are, are uh, uh, you know, are, are developing. Do you agree with that? Yeah, my first three seats for flipping are, um, and this is not in order, are Georgia, Nevada, and uh, Pennsylvania. Um, I think if Republicans don't flip Georgia or Nevada, they will not flip Arizona. Um and so if they're going to flip Arizona, I think it means they've probably held at least one, at least two, if not all three of those other seats. So you're looking at their 52nd or 53rd seat uh, rather than Arizona being the one that defines senatorial control. Henry, you always do a really good job with your election predictions. So I feel I, I feel like we're on the same wavelength. So that gives me some confidence, I guess, about where, th- where things are headed here. But, um, <laughs> you know, Senate, Senate, I think, is still pretty much pretty much up for grabs. The House, maybe mm-hmm. not so much, but we shall see. But um, Henry, uh, I really appreciate it. Um, you can follow Henry on Twitter at Henry Olson, uh, EPPC, uh, and uh, not only on American election nights, but like I said, election nights all over the world, too. So thanks, Henry. Thanks for having me on, Kyle. podcast listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time.